Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the International Biodynamic Guild podcast. I'm your host, Will Bratton. Today, we're joined by Gary Lackman. Gary is the author of many books about consciousness, culture, and the Western esoteric tradition, including Dreaming Ahead of Time, The Return of Holy Russia, Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump, Lost Knowledge of the Imagination, and Beyond the Robot, The Life and Work of Colin Wilson. He's written the biographies of Carl Jung, Madame Blavatsky, Rudolf Steiner, Emanuel Swedenborg, Peter Uspensi, and Aleister Crowley. He writes for several journals in the U.S., U.K., and Europe, lectures around the world, and his work has been translated into more than a dozen languages. In a former life, he was a founding member of the pop group Blondie, and in 2006 was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Before moving to London in 1996 and becoming a full-time writer, Lachman studied philosophy, managed a metaphysical bookshop, taught English literature, and was science writer for UCLA. He's an adjunct professor of transformative studies at the California Institute of Integral Studies. You can find Gary and his work at gary-lagman.com. Now, that was the bio I asked Gary to provide me because there's so much I was having trouble narrowing it down. Uh, There's another 20 or so books he's written, and his music career goes beyond Blondie uh, to include playing with Iggy Pop and others. An incredibly interesting person, perhaps tempering it by writing about interesting people. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me on. So why did you decide to write a biography on Rudolf Steiner? Oh, there's a couple of reasons. Um, one was that um, when I was working at uh, a bookshop in Los Angeles called the Bodhi Tree, which isn't there anymore, but in its day, sort of, which is, ooh, I guess the 80s, 90s, into early 2000s, it was uh, <clears throat> sort of the best-known metaphysical bookshop west of the Rockies. Um, I worked there from about 87 to 93, but uh, they had a whole wall of books, you know, either by or about or the lectures of um, Rudolf Steiner. And I had come across Steiner in, you know, different contexts of, you know, reading sort of histories of the occult or so on and so on. But I never really dipped into it, uh, much in the same way that I never dipped into Theosophy or Madame Blavatsky, although I was aware of her and, and all of that. But um, at the same time as I was working at this bookshop, um, I was getting a degree in philosophy. And um, I saw that Steiner had written a book about Nietzsche. And then also that, um, I think I think it was Riddles of Philosophy, I think was the title of the book. Um, and also, I mean, even earlier than this, I, I was aware of Steiner because of my interest in German expressionism and, um, and expressionist architecture of which there aren't too many examples, at least, you know, buildings actually built. Uh, one is the Einstein Tower in Potsdam outside of Berlin. Uh, but the Goethe Arnhem, you know, the first Goethe Arnhem was considered a work of um, expressionist architecture, although anthroposophists and Steinerians would say, no, 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 it's Goethean architecture, whatever, whatever. But it's very much along in that kind of realm. And I'd seen pictures of it in books about this. And I always thought, this, what a fantastic, you know, structure. And what 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 a tremendous um, shame that it, it had been burnt down to the ground and so on. And so I was aware of it. Oh, Steiner, he he was you know behind that and all that sort of thing. So in any case, I, I was uh, working his bookshop, looking you know among you know Steiner's there amongst all, all the other kind of new age and you know mind body spirit and spiritual and esoteric and so on and so on figures. And um, but I saw that he'd written this book on Nietzsche, and I saw that he had did, did this other, he'd written about Hegel and Kant and all that. And I thought, okay, well, let me check it out. And because um, I was a great reader of Nietzsche, and I was studying Hegel and Kant at the time. 
And he had some cogent, very cogent remarks to make about Kant's epistemology and the Dingon Zeke and how we know that's, um, we can never know it, you know, in some direct way and so on and so on. And Steiner is saying, actually, no, no, there isn't any um, sort of um, impassable barrier between our awareness and, you know, reality, you know, we, we can know it and so on and so on. So I just found this very cogent. But then if you pick up another book or another lecture, he's talking about the Buddha on Mars or, you know, life in Lemuria or, you know, things of this sort. And so I thought, well, how does one, <laughs> how does one sort of, you know, put those two very different kinds of um, perspectives on things, um, you know, uh, together? How, how do you, how, how do you, you know, uh, integrate them in one character because they're both coming from the same person. So if this was a general kind of idea, but then um, later, um, I uh, knew people who were sending their children to uh, Steiner schools, you know, the Waldorf schools. And um, it seemed that, you know, there wasn't a good introductory book just about Steiner uh, that wasn't, again, written by an anthroposophist or written by a Waldorf teacher or so on and so on. It was more about, okay, if you want to just get an idea of what Steiner was about and so on and so on in the context of, you know, cultural history and, and history of ideas and so on, um, you know, there, is, there wasn't anything like that that wasn't basically sort of um, a hagiography. So I thought there was a market, basically a readership for, you know, readable, accessible, sympathetic but critical uh, account of, of his life. And so um, uh, an editor at, uh, at um, Penguin Books um, in the States um, had asked me, well, did I have any ideas for uh, any books? And I, I said, yeah, biography of Steiner. And so we went for it. Well, I really enjoyed it. Like I had told you offline, um, it was uh, the first of that I've read uh, as far as a biography of Steiner that I felt like it was my you know, most intelligent, uh, artistic philosopher friend. And we're hanging out, you know, at the brewery or at a party or something. And you're just sharing <laughs> like your, your, your new obsession, Rudolf Steiner and all the little, all the little, uh, details. Um, in some of those I'd like to get into, cause I, I hadn't, uh, heard of them before. Um, and you, you brought up Nietzsche, um, and then, you know, Steiner's association with, uh, his sister, Elizabeth Forrester and the archive and everything. And uh, at one point you mentioned, you know, Elizabeth had gone to start this pure Aryan colony in, in, in Paraguay, uh, New Germany. I looked it up. It still exists. It's oh, really? It's as popular oh, as ever. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know. Wow. Yeah. So uh, it had seen uh, new, um, uh, gosh, what would you call that? Um, inflation of population uh, around hmm. the anti-vax uh, movement. So. Ah, oh, right. Okay. It, it, it's still there. Um, but then also there at the archive, at the Nietzsche archive, you uh, allude to a story of uh, Fritz Kergel uh, challenging Steiner to a duel um, because he'd, uh, he was under the impression that Steiner and Elizabeth had uh, conspired to unseat him as the editor, but that you wouldn't cover the story there. Do you remember the story? And could you, God, share I, 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 you, you might have asked me this in advance. No, I don't remember the top of my head. Okay. No, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember where I got that from. Um, I don't. I, I don't think Steiner talks about it in his autobiography because he usually doesn't go into anything quite sensational. <laughs> no, exactly. That's why I was like, oh, I mean, the I most sensational thing is the floppy big, you know, bow, bow tie he wears, um, <laughs> or he had that dashing mustache and beard for a while. Right. Um, but it may that may have been in one of the other 
uh, I'm sorry that it's just, it's not the top of my head. Oh, but, good. Uh, no, no, no. I appreciate the, uh, you know, yeah. the, the lead. I mean, but, any, but anything like that, I mean, in, in one sense, I mean, there are all these sort of things. I mean, he got, you know, hit that magazine. Uh, I think the one in Vienna was closed down in Russia because he was associated with an anarchist and all that. So there is, in one sense, there is all this very dramatic kind of, you know, sensational stuff around him. But he, he's, he himself is sort of, you know, um, sobriety incarnate. I, I did want to ask you about the the Scottish anarchist John Mackey. What what do you what do you think of that relationship? Well, I mean, I think Steiner went out of his way in many ways to be close and friends insofar as he could be friends in, in any kind of I don't want to say normal, but you know, usual way we understand it. Um, with people with, in some ways that you know he shared some things with them, but then in many ways he didn't. Um, uh, but he went out of his way to accommodate the other and to understand, you know, their position and all that. And, you know, we know in philosophy of freedom, he's not really promoting a kind of anarchy, but it is a sort of um, individualist, um, you know, uh, ethic, you know, um, or, or uh, you know, and that sort of thing, you know, your, your, your ethical decisions aren't based on either, you know, a categorical, categorical imperative or, you know, um, anything other than in some way your own immediate grasp of the situation and your own free response to it, which, you know, for people less sober than Steiner could be just, you know, could be just anarchy, you know. Um, but Steiner actually makes a very good argument for it, um, which, as I say in, in my book, you know, reading his book, Philosophy of Freedom, I, there were moments where I felt the kind of inner freedom uh for sake of a better word, that he he is talking about theoretically, but it, it actually induces it in some way, and it's that sense of the I, you know, being in an active, living agency, um, not not passive and not merely the the receiver of you know stimuli, but can actually you know instigate them um, themselves. And so I, I I think you know he associated that 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 sort of sense, just likewise he was you know he he. Um, uh, that, but what was it, Max Max Stirner, um, You know the the eye in its own in the, uh, in the 1860s, which is a sort of a precursor um, to Steiner's own um, philosophy of freedom, where it's talking about the ego, the, the the irreducible, absolute, immediate reality of the ego. You know the eye, um, which which Steiner, you know, um, that that's the central argument in philosophy of freedom. Yeah, you, yeah I. Um... It, that seemed to be the part that you resonated most with. And then as he moved into theosophy and anthroposophy and he starts talking about, um, you know, spiritual hierarchies and whatnot, uh, there was less of a connection for you. Uh, well, I mean, I find all that fascinating, but just in terms of, um, how should we say, what someone not interested in committing, you know, to a complete anthroposophical or theosophical kind of worldview can come away with, the takeaway, as we say these days, or at least they do here, um, you know, is 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 this kind of you know inner agency, and also his epistemological. I mean, which is a mouthful, but basically how we how we understand, how we know the world, the way our mind um, interacts or you know interpenetrates actually with the outside world, um, and also you know the inner depths of our own mind as well. So you know, and and this this was this comes out of his argument against Kant. I mean, Kant, 
famously said, um, there's a real reality out there, but we never see it directly. We never experience it directly, or at least we don't know it directly in the way that we know what we consider to be, you know, real hard, uh, indubitable knowledge, you know, science and facts and things of that sort. Um, we intuit it, but we, we can't know it. And this is what he calls the, the thing in itself. Um, and, you know, it's as if we only see the world through a pair of spectacles we have all, all the time. And the, these are the categories. Um, so we can never see what the world is like when we're not looking at it, you know, which sounds like a Zen koan, something like that. And But Steiner, and not only Steiner, but Goethe, you know, he argued against this. Um, but and Hegel uh, said as well, you know, if 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 you know there's an if you know there's a problem of knowledge, then there isn't a, a epistemological problem because there is something you can know. You, you already know one thing. You know there's a problem with knowledge, so there, there's no barrier to not, not knowing something. <laughs> and so let us just jump in, you know, and assume that you know the you know the, the world as we experience it is, is something that we can know. And 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 Steiner, you know, says not only the external sensory world but behind that or within that there's you know this the spiritual realm um that he was aware of as a child or as as he is adolescent and you know different times in his life um but didn't come out of the closet as it were about it until he was in his four or early 40s um after giving a lecture on Nietzsche and then being asked again to go back to the theosophical society in Berlin where he was at the time and he gave that you know talk about the um, Goethe's fairy tale, and it's you know the alchemical, you know, and esoteric and whatever uh, meaning of it. And this is when he started, you know, being able to talk about his inner experiences and the, the spiritual world within, you know, the sensory world as well. And this, this is what he said he had immediate, you know, cognition of that world. And strangely enough, he associated that with his his discovery of mathematics too, which is. Odd. I mean, you know, a, 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 someone else who discovered mathematics is an early, a, a, a early on, and it was you know, a great revelation for him as Bertrand Russell. But he went in a very different direction than Steiner. But for Steiner, mathematics, the idea that he could envision a triangle or some geometric formula, and that it was true, uh, uh, even though he didn't perceive it, you know, with his senses. Um, uh, confirmed for him that, you know, there's a, 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 an inner reality, there's a, you know, there's a, an inner world of ideas, but also his sort of psychic experiences and so on. So, um, yeah, you know, um, I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I think the thing is that, um, you know, Steiner was able to show a way that consciousness can go, you know, into the world in a way that had been true in the past, but without a kind of real grasp that that was happening, a kind of cognition of what, what, you know, what was taking place with consciousness. And then it, you know, we, we lost it until we became, you know, just the, the idea that there's an external world out there and that's it. And there's nothing in our heads that it doesn't come in from the senses. So we're in that wasteland now, but he saw ways to, you know, pass through that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the materialism is further entrenched, I think is how you, you ended the, the book. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I want to get back into that subject, but before we go beyond that period of, of uh, his relationship with John Mackey, um, mm. Mackey was uh, the witness at the wedding to Anna, mm. a eunuch, a eunuch, however it's pronounced. 
uh, I wanted to see what your um, perception of Steiner's relationship with women uh, was. Well, it certainly wasn't sexual <laughs> or erotic. Um, and, um, I, you know, what can you say? I mean, uh, I, uh, um, yeah, I mean, apparently he was celibate. Um, <clears throat> and there isn't any, any, I mean, aside from an early, you know, kind of um, yearning and loving from afar, um, you know, period. And I don't even think he even like talked to this this woman or this girl that you know, and, and he was you know rather young. Other than that, I mean, he married out of convenience, or he says out of propriety. You know, um, I mean, the second one, Marie von Sievers, she she basically kind of you know zeroed in on him, um, and she's the one who convinced him that he could lead you know, some new spiritual revival in Europe and all that. Um, although, you know, one, one, one assumes Steiner probably thought that already anyway. And um, I mean, you can't, I, I, I don't think you can put aside the suggestion that Steiner made use of uh, different, you know, there's the, or, you know, prior to theosophy, he was, he was, you know, he's not, not a Nietzschean, but, you know, he was in that world, the Goethe world, the general, you know, German, Germanic cultural Bildungs uh, kind of world, lecturing on everything. You know, he was lecturing to Marxists, he was to anarchists and all this sort of thing. And then he found an audience with the Theosophists. And then, because initially he was repelled by Theosophy, you know, when he first came across it, his friend Friedrich Eckenstein in Vienna, when um, oh, Sinnott's book, Esoteric Buddhism, came out. Um, Eckenstein was, you know, really into it, uh, and he passed it on to Rudolf, and Rudolf, you know, sort of turned his nose up at it. But then later on, you know, I don't know, 15 or whatever years sort of later on, he, you know, um, he found a home in the Theosophical Society. But, you know, he, you know, uh, I, I guess the point I'm making is, though, uh, even though Marie von Sievers seems to be, you know, the proof of the old adage that behind every, you know, great man there's a pushy woman, um, he probably had ideas in that department to begin with, but wouldn't, you know, necessarily come out with them. So, you know, straightforwardly, uh, but, you know, she, she basically sort of zeroed in on him, but I, you know, the impression I get is that he, you know, he, he talks about, he married so that he wouldn't have the misery of living alone. Um, so I don't know, you know, maybe he just wanted women in the sense of someone taking care of everything around him that kind of thing. So he could dedicate himself to, you know, his work. Uh, although there is some, you know, the, the Uniki daughters later, um, when Steiner was getting involved with Marie von Sievers, they came up with this sort of scandalous story of him being found in some uh, compromising situation with, you know, with some of his devotees. But I mean, the, the idea of Steiner, you know, <laughs> Kind of, you know, uh, what can we say? You know, being savage, savaging and ravaging some women just doesn't doesn't you know come across. I mean, he was so so was uh, Madame Blavatsky, um, you know. So, so on that uh, kind of topic of um, associating with uh, theosophists for um, an audience, uh, mm -hmm. there's a couple characters you you. Um, reference in the book. Uh, one of them is Franz Hartmann. You, you refer to him as the mm -hmm. disreputable and the despicable. I'm unfamiliar <laughs> with him. Uh, who, 
can you tell us who Franz Hartmann is and, and why you make a point? Well, he was one of, these, many, these, one of these many people in this occult milieu at the time. And um, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I say that because most accounts of him present him as, as a rather um, unsalubrious character. Um, I think it's Madame Blavatsky who, you know, sort of really, you know, uh, called him despicable or whatever or, or something like that, you know. But she, but she had a way with words, so uh, she didn't hold back. And uh, but he's one of these characters who belonged to a variety of different, you know, occult societies. And um, I think he wrote a book about Paracelsus and other things as well, and was involved in. I think he was involved in the OTO um at some point which is the ordo templi orientis which is the group that Alistair crowley got involved with um in um around 1912. um so yeah i mean there were you know there were as i said uh, frederick eckenstein was another although he he doesn't have quite the the bad reputation that hartman uh had and uh but i think hartman also had a sense of you know, I, I i think i in my book on blavatsky I, think I seem to remember now it's coming back to me that i think he wrote a um sort of satirical kind of lampoon of her or of the Theosophical Society in, in one of their journals. And, um, you know, Dulesky took it in, in, you know, in good humor. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't, to the t- top of my head, I, I can't think of any particular sort of um, misdeed that would account for his, um, you know, bad reputation. But it may have been just that he was, you know, one of these characters who was always turning up and um, importuning, because I think that's one. That's what Pavasky talks about: was that he was he would kind of turn up and want her to show him how to contact the masters and things of that mm-hmm. sort. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thanks for bringing up um, OTO and and uh, Crowley. I wanted to cover that too. It, uh, I'm, and also that um, in your book you. Um, Describe the situation around the uh, then commander in chief of the German forces in World War One, uh, Hermann von Moltke, and there was a rumor uh, going around that uh, he'd met with Steiner. Steiner had given him bad advice, and that Steiner was ultimately responsible for the loss of the war. And that's a rumor that Crowley repeated, from what I understand. Uh, was there were there any dynamics between? Uh, well, no, Steiner remembered them, but it was after. Um, um... Well, the thing with von Malka is that he stuck to the von Schlieffen plan, right? Which is like, you know, put all your, put all your forces, uh, the idea that you could have, not, it wasn't called the Blitzkrieg then, but it was, you know, if you attacked very quickly and put all your forces against, you know, you know whatever, the, the French there, then the, you could knock them out very quickly and then it didn't work. And that's when it got bogged down into the trench warfare. And, um, but... Um, Steiner knew von Malkta, but he he didn't he didn't meet with him before, sort of after the fact. But the I just just guilt by association, right, right, a, a a slanderous rumor. But yeah, yeah, I mean, like many other things. I mean, you find lots of things. It's just you know because you, for a variety of reasons. I mean, certainly after World War One, um, the far right, uh, the Freikorps. Uh, many of the returning soldiers, they, they, sorry, they, um, happy to find any reason would account for their defeat because they didn't accept that they were defeated. It was the generals. There was a stab in the back. So if Steiner was responsible, um, and you know, and he, you know, he, he became sort of public enemy number one towards the last days of his life in the early twenties, um, with the sort of early sort of proto-Nazi and, and, and early Nazi groups. 
because they saw him as potential, you know, rival. You're, you're totally reading into my, my next question, uh, one mm -hmm. after the other. But before we move mm -hmm. on to that next one, it, was there any beef between Ste uh, Steiner and Crowley? I mean, I've seen quotes. Uh, I, no, I don't think they ever met. I mean, the thing was that Steiner got involved with the OTO for a while. Um, OTOs, uh, or, or temp, Ordo Orient is the order of the Oriental Temple, and this was a group um, sort of started, I think, sort of 1880s, 1890s, um, and um, claimed to have um, heritage going back to the, you know, medieval Knights Templars in the Ho in the Holy Land, uh, upon whom many an esoteric. <laughs> uh idea and and conspiracy theory have been have been has been hung and um they were notorious for practicing a sort of form of sex magic the the oto not we don't know about the knights templars and that sort of thing um but uh, the oto certainly did and um yeah and um some i mean steiner crowley got involved i think around 1912 steiner was involved in 1907 if i'm not mistaken around then so it was before Crowley got involved and he says it's because he wanted to somehow save the authenticity or the you know the genuineness of some of the Masonic rituals that were involved in it which I you know I mean you know people make mistakes too it maybe maybe seemed like a good idea at the time and then you know later on but um the OTO actually was many ways kind of um had a low profile until Crowley got involved in it Although they practice, you know, sex magic, and Crowley did as well. But when he, he got involved, it became um, a, a bigger kind of thing, and and you know, um, much more informed with his own particular philosophy of the lema and, and the, the new age that was coming on, and and, and that kind of thing. But um, no, the and and I think Steiner's association with it was was very brief. Um, but it's one of those things get, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to have on your CV, yeah. <laughs> on, on your, you know, curriculum right. details. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, um, well, I, 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 I belonged to the OTO for a very, very brief period in, in the late seventies when I lived in California, but didn't get up to much. Now, like, uh, with the Freemasonry and Mystica Eterna and, and his idea of it's a, it's a nice frame to put a picture in and. And basically took it in his own direction, from what I can tell. But yeah. the idea that he would be associated with something that in, uh, involves sex magic is is kind of, you know, uh, funny in the same, you know, idea as his, him being found with one of his devotees. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, let's see. Uh, you were you were talking about the uh, proto Nazis and uh, and their hate for for Steiner, and then also the Marxists uh, who he previously lectured to, and and their um, you know, despising him for being a roadblock to, to the greater revolution. Mm. Uh, I, I haven't read them yet. I'm looking forward to them. But I see you've written Politics and the Occult, uh, mm. The Left, the Right, and the Radically Unseen, and uh, Dark Star Rising, mm. Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. Is there anything, is there any crossover uh, in, in what's covered in those books and, and the idea of the left, right, and, uh, and the occult? Uh, well, Politics also is a general kind of history as it were narrative history about the interaction of you know occult ideas in politics or you know or vice versa political ideas in occultism and 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 um i guess the main theme of that book is that um although what's generally uh 
associated, you know, uh, uh, with the idea of politics and the occult, if it's, you know, recognized at all, is that it's all right wing, you know, Umberto Eco and people like that have, have, have written about it in that way. But if you actually look at it, there's, there's what we can call it a progressive or left wing um, occult politics as well. And personally, myself, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, it's not like I'm on either side of them. I mean, they, they both have, you know, lots of problems with them. But, but okay. I just point out that if you look in, you know, um, in history, you can find, I mean, Blavatsky, Blavatsky could be seen as a kind of progressive you know, occult politics in the sense that she was involved in um, what later became, you know, the, the, the um, work for Indian independence that Annie, Annie Besant, who was uh, uh, later um, ahead of the Theosophical Society after Blavatsky died and then and after, after Colonel Alcott, uh, she was directly involved in setting up, you know, the National Congress and all of that sort of thing. It was was arrested, you know, um, while she was in India for supporting, you know, Indian independence and home rule and so on and so on. And there's all, you know, a variety of different other things as well. Um, so that was the theme of that. And Dark Star Rising is more contemporary. It's about um, this kind of weird occult politics that seems to be turning up around Trump, around his campaign and his presidency. And then also, uh, it's still around. Um, uh, well, it's, it's still around the states, I think, in the MAGA kind of thing. But um, also in in um, Russia, because they did a follow up book to Dark Star called um, "The Return of Holy Russia." And Steiner starts out that book. Because Steiner was very influential in uh, Russia pre Bolshevik Russia in the early early twentieth century, and um, um, his ideas were very very much involved in. Um, what was known as the Silver Age, sort of this period just before the just before the revolution, and Steiner's ideas informed much of the sort of uh, avant-garde art and and um, poetry. Um, and uh, this fantastic book called Saint Petersburg by Andrei Bieli, uh, and it's this uh, you know high modernist um, you know experimental account of the 1905 revolution, but it's absolutely just jammed with anthroposophical and, and theosophical sorts of ideas. And he was a student of Steiner and he went to the Goethe Arnhem and things of that sort. Um, but um, in, in the general, I mean, with, with Steiner and, and, and the, the, the thing with the, the Aryan groups and the Nazis is that after World War One, he had, he had sort of a bestseller in this book called The Threefold Social Order, and it was a kind of reconstruction plan for Europe after the catastrophe of World War One, And um, um, that this was the, the Waldorf education comes out of this as well. It was around the same time. And um, these ideas uh, for the social reconstruction that uh, he presented in this book, uh, they also inform some political activity and there were you know some people in different german-speaking regions um uh where you know up you know up for local elections and they were coming you know they, they had a threefold you know platform as it were and um i mentioned the fry corps and they were like one group who were disgruntled soldiers coming back from world war one who didn't believe they really lost the war but they had been stabbed in the back by the politicians or the generals or Steiner or whoever, and other, you know, um, people around this time, um, where I, I guess, you know, kind of early nationalism was, was kicking up in, in, um, 
unhappiness, unhappiness with Weimar. And um, they saw Steiner as a threat. And um, yeah, there's one story where, I forget what year it was, but he was, uh, must have been like maybe 22 or 23 or something like that, but he was giving a lecture somewhere. And he, he had these lectures in, in Berlin and Vienna and other places, you know, capitals where um, there'd be, you know, lines, lines around the block to get in. And um, the uh, word had gone out that, you know, there were people out to get him. And apparently he was saved from being shotgunned by having his lieutenants kind of surround him in a circle. So they, you know, the, whoever was going to try to shoot him couldn't get at him. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there's all stories that the, the first girl to Anton that burnt down, um, it was like, you know, I forgot New Year's Day or New Year's Eve. How, how, how symbolic something. Yeah, it was around, yeah, it was around that. Yeah, exactly. I think 1923, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, that, that somehow proto-Nazi groups were involved with it. Most likely was an electrical fault, but I can't say for certain and no one can by now. Well, uh, it, I mean, as you, you know, say in the book and you do say no one can, no one knows now because it burnt to the ground, but they did find the fire inside the wall. So it's unlikely that it was, arson but who knows yeah i i don't want to uh you know linger there too much but i'm still because we're it is you know 2022 we're looking forward to the 2020 looking forward Mm. (laughs) the 2024 election is right around the unavoidable (laughs) yeah um and trump is still part of the discussion yeah is there anything you'd like anything else you might like to say on that whole like you said occult and maga i mean that's not a common subject well you know it's just uh I mean, what seemed to happen to me with Trump's um, campaign, you know, through his, through his first presidency and during during the presidency, was that all this stuff that I've been, you know, reading about for years and writing about for twenty twenty something years now was on the margins and the fringe was coming into the center. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I mean, the, I mean, Trump, and, you know, this all the whole well, the the the, the book. I was asked to write the book because there was some talk that Richard Spencer, who was the head of the alt-right and nobody, we, we never hear about them anymore, but they were, you know, they were like in all the magazines and all the podcasts and whatever back in the day, they were, you know, but nobody, we never hear from them anymore now. But at, back then that he and his colleagues in the alt-right somehow had used chaos magic to help Trump get into office via the internet and using the talisman of Pepe the Frog. This is way too much for me to explain <laughs> to your listeners. <laughs> Eat up a lot of time. But uh, the whole idea that somehow, and then I looked, you know, I followed that lead, and then it came out that Trump was a devotee of, of um, um, uh, you know, positive thinking. Norman Vincent Peale, which is a kind of Christianized form of mental science, you know, the idea that thoughts are things, and which is essence of magic, you know, we can control reality through our thoughts um and that um also that um um what's uh steve bannon name checked um julius evola who is this italian um esoteric philosopher in the uh, in the 20th century died in the early 70s but um he was you know he cozied up to Mussolini and National Socialists, and then after World War II, he was sort of the gray eminence behind quite a few neo 
um, fascist movements in, in Italy. And he was one of the intellectual, you know, heavy guns that the alt-right would pull out to show that they, they weren't just, you know, skinheads. They, they actually had, you know, theory and um, ideas and philosophy behind their um, positions and so on and so on. And uh, I mean, the, and this was in the New York Times. It came out in an article in the New York Times, Bannon's interest in, in uh, Ebola. And also through that, it was the, uh, a nod to this character, Alexander Dugan, who is, um, well, sadly, he was in the news not too long ago, and his, his daughter was, you know, um, tragically killed in, in, in the, uh, the bomb uh, going off in her car. Um, and most likely, he, he was the intended target. Um, and it's very sad. And n no one should be subject to anything like that whatsoever. But uh, Dugan himself was a reader of this fellow Evola and... You know, a, a, you know, a connecting thing between all these people is the idea of using the mind, you know, the, the the our mental powers in order to influence events in the world. And so, something that you know, <laughs> maybe in the back room and nobody else is around, you might resort to this kind of thing. But the idea that the New York Times was talking about it, and then it was, you know, and the you know, and the I mean, the I, I mean that whole when the, the you know when the um, the capital was invaded when the barbarians broke through the defenses i mean that you know it's the eruption of the american id uh, i wrote an article about that and in general the whole idea of this repression of you know what we might call the dark side of the mind which isn't it isn't necessarily dark um, it's only dark in many ways because we've we've pictured it in that way but it certainly is something other than our rational scientific sort of mind but the fact that certainly for the last four centuries or so, we've completely put it on the fringe and marginalized it, or if, if not have tried to eradicate it completely, it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's taken on in many ways this, this um, I should say, morbid kind of character. And I would yeah. say that it emerged, you know, at, at that event on the January 6th. And the whole idea, the whole sort of return to the golden age myth, that's part of the MAGA um, mindset, that this, what, there was this wonderful time in America's past when you know, it was whatever, the leader of the free world and so on and so on, and we, we have to make America great again. And it's very much what Putin's doing in Russia, or trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see what happens now with what's, you know, with the collapse of his efforts in Ukraine, although, um, you know, one, one, I, 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 I don't want to be uh, alarmist, but I, I forget who I saw in the news uh, recently, BBC, I forget who actually said this, but somebody, some, some analyst or some, some, you know, person of authority said one, one should not, you know, underestimate Putin's, uh, the possibility would he, that he would use a nuclear um, weapon. Yeah. Uh, sure. And I just, just, just to say that, you know, he doesn't necessarily operate in the way we would think, oh, no, you won't do that because of X, you know, because of all these reasons you wouldn't do that. And he doesn't necessarily operate along those lines. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I should uh, say we're recording this on September 25th, and I think Russia is going into full mobilization now, and uh, any, any number of things could happen before this even publishes. So interesting mm -hmm. times. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and then you have, you know, this disruption going on in Iran and mm -hmm. lots of other things happening. So, yeah.
Um, so again, you, uh, before we get into uh, the, the Trump subject, you already started talking about my next question again, and, and that's how Steiner <laughs> believed that the, the folk soul of uh, the Slavic folk soul um, was a very important uh, part of uh, human evolution and that Russia was the country best suited to em embody the new cultural epoch. Uh, and, hmm. and like you said, it, it's, a, it's a big part of the return of Holy Russia. Um, what what else uh, did Steiner foresee in Russia, and are they are they um, presenting what he would have expected? Well, I well I don't know. Is is, is okay. Steiner's um, forecast um, right. coming true? I, I I I don't know. I mean, um, I guess that depends on your perspective. Uh, but uh, well, he you know he said that they were the Christ bearing people, the Russians, and they they they. Would be most open, you know, to the changes in consciousness and sensibility with with that new epoch um, uh, coming in the sixth cultural um, post Atlantean cultural epoch, and they were, you know, they were they were the people in which it would it would it would bloom, and you know, sadly, what happened instead was the you know the Bolsheviks coming in, um, so you know maybe Ariman caught wind of maybe Ariman was listening in on, on Steiner's lectures and decided like, Oh no, we're not going to let that happen. Yeah. Um, Lenin I mean, to Finland. Yeah. But yeah, we're going to put, yeah, put Lenin, we're going to weaponize Lenin, send them into the Finland station instead. So, um, but I mean, you know, at the time um, there were many people in Russia who, who agree with Steiner and they had their own ideas about, about Russia being the place of this kind of, universal kind of Christianity. Um, you know, um, Vladimir Soloviev is a philosopher. He's generally considered the first Russian philosopher um, in the, you know, this, uh, the, what we Western um, um, sensibilities would consider in philosophy. There were, there were moral or political thinkers, you know, earlier than that, we know, obviously, but they're you know, not in the sense of kind of philosophers that uh, we, we would, we would consider that, them to be and um and his his work was all about what was missing in in western philosophy which had you know by i mean the Soviet is coming out sort of in the 1870s 1880s this was sort of the beginning of the um dominance of a kind of materialism in western thought the very sort of materialism that steiner felt that he had to fight against and that uh, um, before him, uh, Blavatsky did as well, although she didn't. She didn't attack it in the philosophical way that, that Steiner did. She more, more or less hammered it out with you know this, these these um, texts like um, well books like Isis Unveiled, which you know which which is one of the first kind of it's one of these first kind of books that there's a whole genre of now where it's like showing how the ancients had something knew something that we we forgot. And how many ways contemporary science lines up with what the ancients knew, sort of. In some ways, it's sort of like Tower Physics in the sense that she shows all these examples of, you know, how ancient Neoplatonic philosophers, whatever, knew things that we're only now discovering, and what we're now discovering was like, was like that sort of thing. She hammered away at that, whereas like Steiner, very patiently and very quietly, you know, and very logically, made an argument for it. 
and so on and so on. But that's, you know, and Salavia points out what he calls the crisis in, in Western philosophy is that it, 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 um, it, it somehow lost itself in, in the, the, the Kantian question of, you know, the, how, how can we know things to some, so rather than having a direct contact with the subject of philosophy, which would be just actual existence and being, um, we got caught up in, um, all these, all this reflection on, um, our tools of how we would, how we would know that sort of, you know, how could we possibly know anything? So we got, we got lost in that. And, um, but, um, but I'm saying he, he, you know, he too had this vision of a kind of universal Christianity coming out of, coming out of Russia. And, uh, and even earlier than, um, Slavia was Dostoevsky in, you know, in his novels and they were friends they knew each other. Dostoevsky presents it not in the philosophical way, but, you know, in, in a dramatic way. But the sort of visionary sort of states of Prince Mishkin and, and, and then Alyosha in the Brothers Karamazov and um, and then this in this um, um, speech he gave, one of the last things he he did, um, you know, he talked about this notion of this kind of new new Christianity emerging. And then you had other, you know, around the same time as Steiner, you had other people talking about Russian man. I, 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 I talk about Hermann Hesse. Who would have known uh, Franz Hartmann? Who certainly would have known what he was, because I think they were both um, uh, frequenters of um, this place in Switzerland known as Monte Verita, the Mountain of Truth, which is like one of the early what we would consider the counter, counter kind of counterculture mm. um, sort of environments, where it was you know all about the health cures and nudism and vegetarianism and back to nature and all this sort of thing. And Hartman was one of the people that were in that. And Steiner visited this place as well. It's in, in Switzerland. In, um, it's called Locarno. It's Monte Verita, the mountain of truth. So, um, I mean, that, that all that sort of thing fascinates me too, how, you know, we think about the 60s is when all this stuff started, but actually the 60s were just, you know, revamping and repackaging of things that had happened, well, some cases 30 and some cases 60 years earlier either you know the 1930s or uh you know a great revival of interest in all the sort of stuff that we would consider to be mind body spirit and you know spiritualism and all that kind of thing and we may be seeing again uh in this decade um i wanted to ask you what uh you think about steiner's relationship with uh lucifer he founded the lucifer journal lucifer gnosis mm -hmm um to share his ideas and then it appears he considers him one of the two primary malevolence and what do you what do you think about all that well i mean blavatsky used the um title lucifer for her journal as well he's the light bringer um yeah i think yeah he does but I, I i think i think at least from what i remember reading i think steiner leaned more heavily on being wary of ariman than lucifer mm -hmm. lucifer was the spirit of pride it's sort of uh, like Milton's, Milton's, um, you know, Lucifer, who better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And you have the Byronic, you know, the romantic kind of satanic figure who is, um, you know, mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Um, um, you know, but they're they're the ones who have this kind of romantic, um, kind of um, appeal and charisma. 
because uh, they're breaking the rules and they're breaking the taboos and all that sort of thing. So, you know, it's a, it's the spirit of um, an independence of sort of um, pride. Yeah. Arrogance kind of thing. But uh, I think, uh, again, this is, you know, I'm, I'm sure some Steiner scholar or, or you know, um, a real anthroposophist out there probably knows better than I do. But this is just from my my, my reading. And again, this is going years back. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't, I have to say, I don't go back to read too much of Steiner in the lectures these days. So there was a period I was just gobbling them up. But um, yeah, I think the, you know, more, more of the danger is um, this ironic, you know, kind of deadening and hardening. And again, with the, well, I guess we could, we could say there's a certain luciferic pride in our, um, embracing technology and in the sense that you know whatever it is computers or variety of it or ai um this is the way forward into um you know human evolution i guess that's the transhumanist sort of thing so this is so yeah that that we we can conquer death we can conquer these limitations um through you know through our technological um savvy um but he, you know, Steiner in the 1920s, he's, he's, it's a hundred years ago, you know, now he's, you know, warning us about the dangers of technology and the harmonic spirits that are involved in it. But he also said, you know, it's, if you go to the movies too often, you know, that's really bad. You, you develop goggle eyes or something like that. I mean, I, and I, he, he was earlier than television, but I'm, I'm, I'm one of many who grew up with, you know, my eyes affixed to the TV when I was a kid. So either I'm irreparably damaged, or perhaps it isn't quite as bad. So um, yeah, I mean, I I've met anthropos anthroposophists who take it all very, very literally. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I I, I remember one I, I've met who you know didn't have a phone, didn't do this, did this, but I had to point out to her. I said, but actually, but you do depend on all the other people around you who who do have those things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so I mean, you know. What, what can you say? Um, but I mean, in general, you know, too much dependence on these sorts of devices um, um, is probably not salubrious. Yes, I, I, I would say that's true. I guess it's always the uh, age-old question of you know how much how much do we change in order to accommodate you know th these new devices and machines we make that are supposed to aid us, or how much do we actually make sure that, you know, um, they, they serve us rather than we becoming more like them in order to, you know, function more efficiently. So I recently interviewed, uh, Gary Lamb, who, who, who covered Steiner's, uh, perspectives on technology. And I was kind of shocked to find that Steiner, uh, said that one of, if not the greatest challenge of our time is, is to navigate our merger with machines. Uh, hmm. so, he was, it's, it's not the kind of, you know, it's not uh, Kurzweil grade yeah, yeah, transhumanism, yeah. but it's, it was pretty, um, pretty forward uh, looking yeah, yeah. In science fiction stuff. No, I think he was um, very prescient about that. Yeah. Uh, it, as we get close to the end of time, I, or end of our time, rather, um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, having been with Blondie and Iggy Pop and some of these big names and being mm -hmm. in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, just uh, your perspective on, uh, you know, the inside, um, esoterics and the occult in rock and roll. 
Oh, well, you know, um, I wrote a book about that, uh, or at least a good portion of it was about this, the, my first book called Turn Off Your Mind, which is about the 1960s and about how all the pop culture in the 1960s was informed with magical and occult and sort of esoteric sorts of ideas. Um, and, you know, I guess the, the um, sort of central image of that is um, the Beatles' um, Sgt. Pepper's um, album, the, the album cover, because Alistair Crowley and, and C.G. Jung and Aldous Huxley and there's a, f a few swamis uh, are, are, are among the people we like. And, um, and they, you know, they were the most famous people in the world at the time, the Beatles, and even the second famous one people in the world, the Rolling Stones, they, they got involved in all that sort of thing and, as well. So, um, um, you know, I think it's like anything else. I mean, there's people that uh, this it's just something that's part of their life. It's in the background in some way. I mean, even when I was playing in Blondie, I remember Debbie Harry, she used to throw the I Ching, you know, got the next gig coming up and stuff like that, you know, but, um, and then people like Bowie, he was very much into it. Um, it it's several of his albums. And then, um, you know, uh, it's on quicksand, you know, I'm closer to the golden dawn wrapped in Crowley's uniform of dream reality and so on and so on. But, you know, it's also, you know, how much are they, quote unquote, serious students of it and how much do they just pick up and use, which is what artists generally do is another question. Um, but um, no, I, I, you know, I, but there's quite a, I think there's quite a few books out about, you know, either in a general sense, how um, in many ways, uh, uh, well, I, I would say certain, well, I mean, you can go depending how far back you want to go. I mean, there's always been an association with, magic and music mm -hmm. um the earliest operas uh, were um sort of informed with alchemical ideas and things of that sort and um there's some wonderful books by um a scholar named jocelyn godwin where he's 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 um gone into great detail about how you know different composers have been influenced by this stuff you know one of the sort of key uh works is mozart's um opera the the uh, magic flute which is all about sort of sonic ritual and initiation trials and things of that sort so um and i would say in general this in terms of human human psyche both magic and music sort of um, try to reach into that inner unconscious part of ourselves you know the the bit of ourselves that's submerged below the critical left brain ego that is um, often too smart for its own good, but, um, you know, cuts out um, the stuff that it doesn't understand. But, you know, when you, when you, when the music moves you or when the spirit moves you same way, you know, it's, it's in touch with this you know, deeper level of yourself. And uh, there's a couple other books that I'm interested in that you've written, uh, Dreaming Ahead of Time and uh, Lost Knowledge of the Imagination. Uh, what are those two about? Oh, well, um, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> Dreaming Ahead of Time is essentially about my experiences with precognitive dreams, which are dreams in which bits and pieces of the future turn up in advance of you actually you know, experiencing it. Um, in real life. And they're not dreams that 
when you wake up, you know, or you feel strongly that you've had some premonition of something, you, 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 un unless you wrote your dreams down, you wouldn't notice. But I got into the habit of writing my dreams down. I've been keeping dream journals off and on since about 1980. So it's quite some time now. And um, that's when it first started for me. It was back then when I was living in New York as a musician. And um, um, I had got interested in all this sort of stuff at that time when I was first playing in Blondie. That's when I first started reading books about all this kind of thing. And I even wrote a song about this experiences of shared dreaming and sort of telepathic experiences I was having with my girlfriend at the time. It's a song called I'm Always Touched by Your Presence, Dear. That was a hit in the UK and Europe. It, it wasn't a hit in the States, but uh, this side of the Atlantic it was. And, um, and it's, uh, I, it's, it's been stuck in my head for the past week. Oh, good. Well, there you go. <laughs> a good tune should do that. There you go. Um, and, um, so I got interested in, I mean, that's, you know, many years later, I, I you know, had a second career writing about this stuff, but my interest in it started way back then. And, um, yeah, so over the years, I've just, I've just, um, kept a journal and I've collected quite a few, um, dreams in which bits of the future turned up. And I write about my own experiences in that. And I write about the other people who, um, had these similar experiences. The The book I read that got me going on, it was a book called um, An Experiment with Time. And it was came out in the 1920s. Um, it was written by a fellow named J.W. Dunn, who was uh, not an occultist or a spiritualist, anything like that. He was an uh, aeronautics uh, engineer. But just by chance, he discovered that bits of his own future were turning up. And again, I emphasize that it's your own future. It's not a general kind of, you know, prediction of this, this will happen or a premonition. Uh, you feel it's like what you will read in the newspaper later on that day, or what you'll hear on the radio that day, or, you know, what you'll see in your Twitter feed that day or the next day or so on and so on. And, um, there's different time lengths. I mean, I've had some where it's been years in between having the dream and then the, the reality happening. And then there's others where it's like, I, I dream something just before waking up and then I'm up making my coffee and then what I just dreamt about happened. So, but, um, yeah, it's, it's about my own experiences and then other people's and different, um, speculations about the nature of time and the nature of dreams and nature of consciousness and lost knowledge. Imagination is, uh, about the idea that, um, we think of the imagination. We generally think of it as being either make believe or being on the cutting edge, you know, of technology or whatever, you know, in the market or whatever it might be, the latest car kind of thing, or, you know, something that's entertaining. But we don't generally think of imagination as a means of gaining knowledge of reality. But there's a long tradition where th that is the case. Um, and prior to the rise of what we, you know, today call science, the beginning of it in the early 17th century, um, the notion that imagination um, had, had a cognitive, a noetic character to it was, was you know, accepted. Um, it's only in, you know, relatively recent times, historically, that um, that, 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 that notion has been sidelined. And that's, that's one of the essences of the magic or the magical tradition or the hermetic tradition is that imagination is actually a, a means of knowing about reality and also affecting it. And so I take that idea 
and I look at a variety of different writers and philosophers and uh, sort of spiritual uh, figures and teachers that have um, understood um, imagination in this way. And this ranges from people like William Blake, the poet Blake, the German poet Goethe, um, the uh, French phenomenologist and scholar of Persian mysticism, Henri Corbin, who coined the term the imaginal mm-hmm. to um, define this in-between realm between, let's say, something that's purely conceptual, which is grasped by the mind, it's a concept, and then something that's sensory, which is seen by the senses. So it's a sensory phenomenon, but then the imaginal is somewhere in between, where it's embodied, but not physical. And it has a kind of meaning and significance, but it's not only conceptual. It's something that, you know, has, sorry, has, has an image. We 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 enter this realm and you know we, we go into the dream state but there, there are practices um and disciplines where you can um learn how to enter it um, not only briefly and, and unconsciously when asleep but consciously and navigate through it and have encounters and so on and so on um it's uh, jung talks about it in a different way he talks about active imagination which is a kind of dreaming while you're awake um, so, I mean, they're related, you know, the dreaming ahead of time and lost knowledge are related in the sense that they're both about this other way of knowing things, which we, we have, it's part of our inheritance, but our culture has tended to, um, marginalize it or sort of characterize it as some kind of, you know, extra, it's a cherry on top <laughs> rather than something that actually is, you know, gives you the the full-on uh, nutritional meal. Or even that it's um, backwards or hokey. Oh, yeah, or, or just superstition or, or stupid yeah. or that's just your imagination, you know, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, complete, completely valueless, yes. Well, Gary, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, oh, my pleasure. And, yeah, the lost uh, knowledge of imagination is probably going to be my next uh, Lackman read. All right. Well, I hope you enjoy own. it. Thank you. Okay. Have a great uh, rest of the week. All right, you too. Take care.